0: Listen, that was a cake baker breaking an egg and separating it. The white here, the yolk here. That was the last of the 12 eggs to be separated. Next step in the recipe, beat the whites. Our cake baker is French and a good baker too. So of course the cake will be of a lightness and delicacy. A cake that kisses back. Pour in the sugar the flour, and now the ingredient that makes all the difference to this cake. You didn't hear anything because it was only a smidgen and smidgens don't make any noise, not even a smidgen of arsenic, of which that was. The noise comes later. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family,
1: history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes.
0: And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history and how food
1: connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm fantastic, Lay. How are you? Happy 2024. I know, right? It's so crazy. I feel like
0: it's been forever that we've been together. The holidays were great. We lived through deep freeze 2024, though we did have some drama. But we lived <laughs> through it. We got through it. But, you know, it was so nice to have a little bit of decompression time. Mhm. But I am super super excited to get back into the recording studio. That would be my Little loft in the tiny house that also doubles as my office and my art studio to launch season four of the As We Eat podcast
1: Food and Crime. How are you doing? I am so happy. I am so thrilled about the season. I know what little plans and machinations that we have cooked up. And so (laughs) I'm just so excited to share all of these with the As We Eat family. And yeah, be ready, folks, for a wild ride this season. <laughs> we were surprised, actually, when we started doing our research to figure out exactly how much food crime there is out there. So we're going to be serving up some really delightful, delicious, decadently deadly stories for you this season. That was some great alliteration. <laughs> Thank you. I practice in the mirror.
0: <laughs> oh, so. Okay. To kick off our food and crime season, we're sharing a story about deception, pastries, and poison. Now, the introduction that I narrated at the top of the episode is actually from a radio program episode that aired in the 1950s called The Seven Layered Arsenic Cake of Madame Lafarge. It was quite dramatic and, dare I say, sensational. (laughs) And in all honesty, I feel like that I may have set the stage for a pretty cut
1: and dry crime, which this definitely is not. I don't, sorry, cut and dry, dry cake. I'm sorry, I had to go there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I want to take you back to the 19th century, to Paris, France, and introduce you to 18-year-old Marie Fortunet Capella. Marie was born into the privileges of the upper class. Her father, a military officer and a favorite of Napoleon. Her grandmother, the Baroness and... Love child of Louis Philippe II, the Duke of Orleans, which would make her a descendant of Louis XIII of France. She had an aunt married to a Prussian diplomat and another married to a secretary general of the Bank of France. So one would think with this CV, Marie would be on the path to aristocratic stardom. But that was not to be. No, at 18, Marie moved into the home of one of her maternal aunts after having lost both of her parents. Now, under the supervision of this aunt, she attended the right schools. She socialized in the upper-class circles. And yet, she was viewed as a poor relation. Her dowry of 90,000 francs was respectable enough, but certainly nothing in comparison to the women she rubbed elbows with. And as Marie's 23rd birthday came and went, and without any matrimonial prospects on the horizon, Marie's uncle, unbeknownst to her, solicited the help of a marriage broker, a marriage broker who had also been engaged by one Charles Lafarge. Charles was a 28 year old ironmaster deeply in debt and on the verge of bankruptcy. But upon hiring Monsieur Foy, the marriage broker, Charles indicated that he was a wealthy ironmaster, owner of an estate and property valued at 200,000 francs and a foundry that provided 30 francs in annual income. Liar, liar, pants on fire. As Monsieur Foy thumbed through his Rolodex of available ladies, Marie's name struck him. Now, in order to keep up appearances, Marie's uncle scheduled a chance meeting between Marie and Charles at a private concert. Marie was less than impressed. She described Charles as, quote, extremely ugly. His form and features were the most business-looking conceivable. But still, he was wealthy, and they say that his house, Le Glandier, was a lovely place to live. End quote. Shortly after this arranged chance meeting, Marie and Charles were married in a quaint ceremony, and the newlyweds set off to the lovely estate with a large park and wonderful views. If Marie had any optimism about this union, it was quickly dashed during the honeymoon voyage. After having traveled all day, the matrimonial group stopped at an inn, and as Marie lowered herself into an eagerly anticipated bath, Charles pounded on the door, demanding to be let in. Marie asked for ten minutes at which time she would be dressed. It is precisely because you are undressed that I want to come in, shouted Charles, cursing her Parisian etiquette and modesty. He again demanded to be let in, but when Marie refused, turned heel and left a stream of obscenities following him far too coarse for Marie to transcribe into her diary. Now, the following day, Charles's brutish behavior had turned into kindness and compassion, though this did very little to assuage that feeling in the pit of Marie's stomach, and that feeling engulfed her as they rode up to the lovely house with the wonderful views, August 13th of 1839. The manor may have been lovely at one time, but it had fallen into disrepair. There was a dampness that bore straight to the bone. Plaster fell from the ceiling. Rats scampered across the floors and in the walls. Tapestries and draperies were moth-eaten. Furnishings were missing. Sickened by the sight of her new home and the derisive welcome of her mother-in-law and sister-in-law, Marie retired to her room asking for an inkwell and paper that she may write a letter. When the inkwell and the paper were delivered, Marie sat down at the broken writing desk and wrote a letter begging Charles to release her from the marriage, promising to leave him all of her possessions and disappearing without a trace, begging him to act as the guardian angel of a poor orphan girl and slay her, saying that she had killed herself. Now, to Charles's credit, he didn't respond with anger to the letter that Marie had slipped under the door. As a matter of fact, He waited for her to feel well enough to come out on her own. He greeted her with a hug and promised to remodel the house to her standards, and that until he could prove his adoration, he would not demand matrimonial conjugation. And things did start to get better. Charles kept his promises. He even bought books and magazine subscriptions for Marie. And for Marie's part, she gave Charles some money to invest in the forge, made some connections to help with loans, and it appeared that if not a full-on romance, the relationship of mutual respect was developing. As winter approached, Charles planned a business trip to Paris, a trip that he hoped would result in business loans being proffered. You know, I imagine Marie waving goodbye to her husband from the manor's steps, while desperately wishing to accompany him back to Paris, this city that she knew so well and loved, sighing wistfully as she turned to meet the disapproving glares of her mother-in-law's and sister-in-law and housekeeper, Mademoiselle Braun. Now, not to be disillusioned by these three, Marie made a decision to send a package to her husband that would include a miniature portrait of herself, some chestnuts, and several small cakes made by her mother-in-law, whose reputation for making pastries was, quote, colossal. And who was not accustomed to concede to any grand work of making side dishes, end quote. As well as a note suggesting that it might be romantic if both she and Charles ate a cake at midnight, and though they would be apart, they would share this experience together. Such a sweet thought. Now, this decision would set in motion a series of events that would end with Marie serving 12 years at the prison of Toul. And this is where contemporary sources start to spin many a story that are really kind of difficult to verify. One of the stories indicates that rather than the several small cakes that Marie referred to in her note, there was only one large cake. And the package looked as though the cords that Marie had secured it with originally had been removed. Wherever the truth lies, the fact that Charles ate a piece of cake and then became violently ill is not in question. He was so sick, in fact, that a Parisian doctor was called to the hotel, and based on the symptoms that he witnessed, diagnosed Charles with cholera, a disease that plagued Paris from 1832 to 1849. Charles wasn't well enough to travel back to Le Glandier until January 5th of 1840, and once back in the manor, he was cared for by his mother, sister, housekeeper, a cousin called Emma, and of course Marie. The family doctor was called and corroborated the Parisian doctor's diagnosis, cholera, and he prescribed good sleep and good food. Marie was at Charles' bedside every day, feeding him chicken broth, eggnog, wine, you know, good food. And when Charles complained that the incessant noise made by the rats scurrying in the walls did not allow him the rest that he needed, Marie asked her husband's clerk, Monsieur Denis, to acquire traps and arsenic to combat the rodents. She showed Charles the traps and arsenic that Denis brought back, confirming that the amount that she had acquired of arsenic would do the trick, because she had already once tried to rid the manor of the rodents without any success. But even with all the care provided by the ladies, Charles' condition did not improve, and on January 14, 1840, Charles Lafarge died. and maries in-laws and housekeeper were convinced that it was not cholera that had taken Charles from them. They were convinced that Marie had poisoned her husband with arsenic. And to be fair, arsenic poisoning looks a little bit like cholera symptoms. It was also an extremely difficult poisoning to prove in the early to mid-19th century. We're going to take a quick sponsor break, and afterwards, Kim's going to tell us all about the testing that would ultimately lead to the conviction of our young, disillusioned, possibly criminal bride. Spring is coming, and that means that there will soon be crops of fresh and tender vegetables to perk up our winter palates. If, like me, you find yourself craving some novelty, then Kim and I heartily recommend the delicious artisan oils and vinegars, salts and spices, chocolates and conservas, and gifts at Genesis Kitchen. Genesis Kitchen is committed to helping the foodie community find a wide variety of ethically and sustainably sourced food and pantry items. My favorite is the Barnacle Kelp Chili Crisp. And Kim won't stop talking about Teeny Tiny's Organic Curry Spice Blends. And if you're looking to share a little food love with someone special, there are a variety of gift sets that Genesis Kitchen has especially curated to whet the appetite. If you're local to the Flathead Valley, visit them at their Columbia Falls location. If not, they're just a click away at genesis-kitchen.com. This episode is sponsored by Genesis Kitchen. Use the code asweeat 25 to enjoy 25% off your first order. Promotion ends April 30th, 2024.
1: Thanks, Lay. I'll start by saying that there is a great deal about forensic science that we take for granted now. The belief that scientific techniques provide irrefutable proof is as modern as the techniques themselves. Fingerprint analysis, for example, was first used to prove identity in the United States in 1902. Basic blood typing dates to the 1920s. Testing for gunpowder residue dates to 1933, and rudimentary DNA testing dates to the 1980s. On the other hand, poison, as part of a murderer's toolkit, has been around for a really long time. And the methods and means of poisoning are quite ingenious gloves, dresses, saddles, arrows, feathers used to induce vomiting that was ascribed to Emperor Claudius in AD 54, as well as all manner of food and drink. And for many centuries, arsenic, especially the odorless arsenic trioxide, was a poisoner's best friend because it could be easily incorporated into food or drink, and those poison would appear to have symptoms similar to cholera, much like Monsieur Lefarge, and that's diarrhea, vomiting, and muscle cramps. The specifics of poisoning were especially difficult to prove after the fact. For the 1616 murder trial of Sir Thomas Overby, the jury was specifically warned to not expect proof that Overby was murdered specifically with arsenic and mercury, just that A, he was murdered, and B, he was poisoned. An assailant's guilt was largely tried on circumstantial evidence at that time. Did the accused have the motive, means, and opportunity? But there was no expectation that they could prove exactly what happened. In 1775, Carl Wilhelm Scheele developed a prototype testing method involving combining materials suspected of containing arsenic with nitric acid and zinc, thereby forcing it to change to arson gas, which produces a distinct garlic-like smell. In 1787, Johann Metzger discovered that arsenic trioxide heated by carbon will sublime. And that's a fancy chemistry term that means turning vapor into a solid deposit. I totally had to look that up. In 1806, Valentine Rose treated a suspected poisoned stomach with potassium carbonate, calcium oxide, and nitric acid to see if it produced arsenic trioxide that might sublime per Metzger's methods. All these tests could detect arsenic, but only if there was enough concentration, making it pretty unreliable for evidentiary purposes. Enter James Marsh, an inventive British scientist and chemist who developed a number of innovations, including screw time fuses for mortar shells and percussion tubes for artillery. He also invented an early form for vibrating electrical interrupters that I simply don't understand, but that's actually less important to our point. James Marsh liked to tinker and invent, and he was great with chemistry. As a scientific witness for the prosecution in an 1833 murder by poisoning trial, Marsh tested a sample of coffee believed to be poisoned and successfully identified the presence of arsenic trisulfide. However, by the time it came to show the jury the results, the sample was deteriorated and the suspect was acquitted due to reasonable doubt. The sucky part too was that the acquitted suspect actually later confessed that he had poisoned his grandfather and this just really irritated James. So frustrated, he revised Carl Wilhelm Scheele's 1775 method of arsenic detection into a process that could not only detect minute traces of arsenic, but also measure its quantity. Adding a sample of tissue or body fluid to a glass vessel with zinc and nitric acid would produce arsenic gas if arsenic was present. Igniting this gas mixture would oxidize any arsenic present into arsenic and water vapor. A cold ceramic bowl held in the jet of the flame would become stained with a silvery black deposit of arsenic, similar to the physical result of Metzger's reaction, and the intensity of the stain could then be compared to films produced using known amounts of arsenic. So in that way, kind of A is arsenic there and then B also in what amounts. This method proved so sensitive that it was purported to be able to detect as little as 1 50th of a milligram of arsenic. Definitely a superior innovation over what had happened before. Marsh believed that the technique was so simple that anyone could use it, even without a profound knowledge of chemistry. He subsequently published a report of his test, called the Marsh Test, in the Edinburgh Philosophical Journal in 1836, and developed a simple glass apparatus. The validity of the science of the Marsh Test was challenged by this trial of Madame Marie Lafarge. But relentless press scrutiny of the trial and basically our sheer dogged desire to definitively know what happened in any kind of murder scenario helped to legitimize forensic toxicology as a viable form of legal evidence. We now had a tool in addition to circumstantial evidence to determine whether a crime happened and to what degree. Marsh testing method has continued actually with some improvements to continue to be the basis of forensic toxicology until the 1970s.
0: Okay, so bearing all of that in mind, I want to go back to Marie's trial and conviction. As I mentioned, Marie's mother-in-law, sister-in-law, and family housekeeper were convinced that Marie had been poisoning Charles from the day that he returned from Paris and likely had poisoned the cake that he had eaten. So convinced, in fact, that they did their own arsenic testing on the food they suspected Marie of poisoning. This test consisted of trying to detect the smell of garlic as Kim had mentioned as the tainted food was boiling. Very scientific. They also saved bowls of broth and cups of eggnog and wine for the local police to test, and after convincing the local magistrate to investigate Marie for Charles's death, they brought forth this suspected food. No opportunity here of any kind for tampering or contamination, and then There was the test that the local police force performed on Charles's body. Now, these men were not aware of the Marsh test, so they ran a very unscientific test. Oh, and the tube that they were using actually broke during the test, but they did find arsenic to be present. This test would have provided a failed grade in high school chemistry. In fact, Matthew Orfila, the dean of the Paris medical faculty, had provided his opinion on the findings of this test specifically. Quote, you asked me if it is sufficient proof for the presence of arsenic in the digestive organs. If the liquor produced by boiling them in distilled water yield when treated with sulfated hydrogen, a yellow participant, he was describing the old method that this police force had done. I answer, no. End quote. Essentially, this medical professional said that the test that had brought Marie to court was meaningless, that all they really had was hearsay from three women who didn't like Marie. But again, as Kim had mentioned, this really was all that it took to bring somebody to court. And so the judge ordered Charles's body to be exhumed and retested. The exhumation took place more than six months after Charles had died and was quite the exhibition. It's said that hundreds of onlookers crowded around the grave as his body was removed from what was supposed to be his final resting place. There were even vendors selling smelling salts, and Charles's body was so decomposed that they had to use spoons to scoop up the matter to be tested. The marsh test conducted— The report was issued and it was read in court. No arsenic was found in Charles Lafarge's body. But the prosecutor wanted no needed, as Kim mentioned, we have to have these answers to convict Marie Lafarge of this crime. So that they argued, you know, really, we have a tie. We have one test that says there was arsenic. We have one test that says there wasn't. So how about two out of three? No matter the first test was debunked by a
1: preeminent medical professional and your high school chemistry teacher would have failed you for it. It was new and it was really tricky. It was harder to do than James Marsh assumed. Right. He's of the mindset of he likes to figure things out. He likes to tinker. He thinks this process is super easy and it turned out to be not quite so easy that anyone could do it. But it still was sound science. Exactly.
0: Right. So. They proposed that they hire the preeminent medical professional, Orfila, to do the next marsh test. So Orfila and his team conducted the final test. Before he read the conclusion, he addressed the court by telling them that human bones contain trace amounts of arsenic, spoiler alert, they don't, and that it can also be leached from the soil. So they had been extremely careful to ensure that none of the samples that they had tested included bones or contaminated soil. And the conclusion? They had indeed detected arsenic. How much, you ask? Half a milligram. And so, 24-year-old Marie Lafarge was found guilty of poisoning her husband and sentenced to life in prison with hard labor. The hard labor was actually commuted, and in 1852, she contracted tuberculosis and was released from prison by Napoleon III. But unfortunately, she died several months later at the age of 36. It's a hard life. Now, Marie did have a champion in the chemist François Raspel. Who may have been driven a little bit by a guilty conscience because he had arrived too late to court to provide his testimony on the final test. But Raspell would spend years challenging Orfila's findings, claiming that the amount of arsenic found was actually one hundredth of a milligram. Not only that, but that it was discovered that Orfila had sent one of his assistants to obtain some reagent, and that reagent hadn't been tested for arsenic, so it could have contained arsenic itself. Now, if you haven't guessed by now, I don't believe that Marie Lafarge was guilty. I believe another theory, one that was reported by the Edinburgh Review in 1842. This theory speculates that Monsieur Denis Babier, Charles's clerk, was in fact the murderer. In their examination of the case, it was discovered that Monsieur Barbier, quote, lived by forgery and was the accomplice of Lafarge in some very shady transactions by which that unhappy man sought to cover his insolvency. Barbier had also conceived a violent hatred against Madame Lafarge, as her presence was likely to hinder his nefarious practices and especially to weaken his hold over his companion in crime, end quote. Remember, Monsieur Denis had full access to the manor, to the grounds, to Charles. So it's not hard to conceive of him replacing the cakes with a cake that he had poisoned, or tainting the chicken broth, or the eggnog, or the wine. So,
1: I leave you with this question. Would you eat Madame Lafarge's seven-layer cake? Ah, What a question. I mean, at the time, I probably wouldn't have thought of it. If my spouse had sent me a delightful, delectable cake and I was trying to win their favor and, you know, we were trying to make a go of a marriage, I probably wouldn't have assumed any ill intentions and I would have eaten the cake. As you point out, there are so many actual alternative possibilities that do present enough reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell from the research I've been doing, they didn't even have to replace the cake. Either the cake could have been created poisoned from the get-go, or something could have been added to it. There are plenty of cases. I mean, Alan Turing died from a poison injected into an apple, allegedly. And so, you know, it could have been that she created a perfectly fine cake. She had made broth, she made eggnog, and then somebody else tampered with it. Mm -hmm. And the thing about arsenic, too, is it takes about 14 days for the poisoning to actually manifest. So it could have been Anything kind of during that time. The other thing that to me is a little bit of a wrinkle in the whole story too is that at that time, arsenic was sometimes taken as medicine. Yes. And the division between what was considered actual known poison and what was considered an actual medicine was sometimes just the marking on a jar skull and crossbones, this is poison. And otherwise it was considered to be medicinal. We don't know. We can guess perhaps a physician, the Paris physician, Somebody else had given Charles some medication meant to be medicinal, and it was actually poisonous. I mean, there are cases where that poison and that medicine were actually the same thing. So I think that there's just too much reasonable doubt to say definitively that Madame Lafarge was the one who did it. That he was poisoned, I think, is very likely, but by whom? Right. It's hard to say. This case made me notice something kind of interesting, though, which was that her upbringing, her place in the world before her marriage was borderline aristocratic. Mm. And we are always so tempted to think that those born or in circumstances of privilege or wealth cannot or would not conceive of the idea of murder, that it wouldn't have crossed their minds, especially for a female. And I found myself kind of falling into that trap at first when you're describing Madame Lafarge. Mm. Like, Oh, well, you know, she's educated. Like, why would she turn to poison? She already asked him to basically let her leave to kill her. Mm -hmm. So why would she then come to the decision to murder? But of course, we know that's a trap. Right. (laughs) Because if your mind is bent on murder, murderers are going to murder. So, (laughs) But it was funny finding myself falling into that moment of, well, would she possibly have an imagined murder? Maybe she did, but didn't do it. Or maybe she did and she did do it. And maybe she did, but, you know, somebody else beat her to it. (laughs) But yeah, I have a reasonable doubt that Madame Lafarge is guilty. Agreed. Yeah. I would not have convicted. It would have been a hung jury if I had been a juror. Yeah.
0: But maybe not. Right? Because I would have been living in that time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Hmm. What a thrilling tale. You know, it said that the success of the Marsh test did actually create a deterrent for murder specifically by arsenic. So that's not to say that cyanide and other poisons didn't, you know, surge in popularity, but because those willing to commit murder have found many other dastardly weeds and methods with other poisons, as I've said. And our next episode delves into a true crime story of obsession, chocolate, Poison and murder. (laughs) You can tell I'm really excited for the season. (laughs) (laughs) For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Please follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. But please don't share your poison cake recipes there. Probably not a good idea. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Step away
0: from that white powder, please, and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify. This simple act really helps us reach more food enthusiasts and true crime aficionados just like you.
1: We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. There, we take tasty side trips through vintage recipes community cookbooks, discoveries, and travel stops, and so much more. We're sure you're going to find something that you love at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We
0: Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, inspires, sometimes kills, by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion.